please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, read verses 1 through 11. It's found on page 961 in your pew Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. You may be seated. Let's pause for a moment of reflection. I wonder how many times in your lifetime you have encountered a formidable foe, some kind of insurmountable object, something or someone so big that as soon as you encountered it, you you knew you needed help. I encountered my formidable foe in the ninth grade. In the ninth grade, I was a wrestler. And so, as a wrestler, you go to different teams' sites, and the first thing you do is you have a weigh-in. And so the teams sort of line up in the locker room, and they just take the lightest weight class first, and each person gets on the scale and makes sure they're in the right weight class And then it's the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And this particular day, as we lined up one by one, each member of the team came around opposing corners to the scale that was in the locker room. And so as a heavyweight wrestler, I was the last one to weigh in, and I turned the corner on my formidable foe. 6'5", 350 pounds. I wasn't sure if it was a, a, a man or a beast. And, you know, that wasn't the worst part about the whole event. That was just the way in. You get out to the match, and what happens is on each side of the mat, you have your team, and on the other opposing side, you have the other team. And the lighter weight classes go first until the last match, and so there I am, the whole match, staring at this mountain across from me, a man large enough to be a crowd, to have his own zip code, and I realize it's coming, match by match, round by round, and and all hope of life just drained out of me. We finally got on the mat, we shook hands, and I wanted to fall down and pin myself right at that moment and just say, it's over. It's, uh, you know, he tripped me. He's got, he's got it. It's all right. 
But the referee blows the whistle, and we begin to wrestle. Round and round we go, wrestling on and on. Ten, twenty, thirty seconds went by. And, you know, I can't tell you exactly what happened in the end. I can tell you how I felt. I felt like in sort of one swift move, I got swallowed up by 350 pounds of flesh. I didn't hear the referee slap the mat. Just light came on, and I was like, yes, I'm alive. I was so happy. You know, probably all of us here have some kind of funny story where we've encountered something or someone that we said, man, this is going to be bigger than what I can handle. I, I feel like I'm, I'm already going to lose before the battle's even started. But all of us, or at least most of us, have stories which are not so easily told. We've encountered situations, we've turned a corner in our life thinking, oh, this is going to be great, but then we encounter something or someone that's bigger than we can possibly, we can possibly defeat. And when you get in those situations, you've noticed this about yourself, you always begin to look around for help. Who or what can help me out of this situation? Human history gives us proof that every person here faces one common enemy. And although the enemy may be sitting on the sidelines now, and it may for many of us here as a young congregation feel like that enemy is a long way off. I've got a lot of rounds of living, but we're all facing one common foe that as the days and years go by, it's, it feels like it's closing in, and that is death. The good news of Easter morning is that 2,000 years ago, death turned a corner and ran into something bigger than it. Death, who had been conquering year after year, millennium after millennium, finally turned a corner and death met its match. Jesus Christ went toe-to-toe with death and came out the victor. And so that's why we're here today. And that's why people come to church on Easter morning more than any other particular Sunday is because everybody in the world understands that human history tells us it gives us proof that we're all going to face this common foe and everybody's looking for a way of escape. Everybody's looking around saying, who can help me? And Jesus Christ, by his own resurrection, is saying, I can help. I'm the only one qualified. I'm the only one who's defeated death. And so the message of the resurrection has been not only transforming lives, but giving people hope. Even when they're facing very difficult circumstances in their lives that don't have to do with death, but they're facing people or situations that feel like, I'm getting swallowed up by this event. 
that the cross and the empty tomb continues to give hope to people in those situations. When we look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, this could be titled Paul's Easter Sermon. He spends the whole chapter in chapter 15 talking about the resurrection. He's gone through a number of different things in his letter, and he's getting here to the end of this first letter, and he takes the whole time to look at the, about the resurrection. And we're only going to spend time on the first 11 verses, where Paul gives a reminder of the gospel in the first three verses. Then he gives us the content of the gospel, and at the end he gives us the effect of the gospel. So he starts out reminding of, us of the gospel, and then he answers the question, well, what is the gospel? He gives us the content of the gospel, and then he says, and here's the effect of the gospel. He's going to look at himself and say, this is how it's affected my own life. So I want to look at it in those three segments. First, a reminder of the gospel. The ancient city of Corinth, which is located in Greece, was a very secular city. And in that city, if you walk down the streets, there were the usual world peddlers of sex and money and power and popularity. Shops selling the same things that shops are selling today. And people would walk by thinking, this is going to give me life. And when that one wasn't working, they'd go over here and try to find life from one of these other places. And if Corinth had a marketing team, the city of Corinth probably would have coined this phrase that you're familiar with. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Corinth is a seaport. There's lots of people coming in and out. Lots of people trying to find Life in different situations. Corinth is also an important cult, at an important cultural and business intersection. And so there were all kinds of materials floating around from different cultures sort of crossing at Corinth. And so you always had books on the newest philosophies. Or you had books constantly coming out about ancient secrets that have been uncovered. And now if you apply these secrets to your life, you will be guaranteed fulfillment. Certainly there would have been an endless supply of get-rich-quick schemes floating around Corinth. Adding to this mix in Corinth were the Greek people generally very skeptical of the supernatural. Greek people were really into knowledge and academics and wisdom, and that was the king. And so this is the sea that Paul finds himself walking into in Corinth. And I, I know you, you, you probably are having a hard time even imagining living in a city like this. One that peddles the hardware of the world. One that has all kinds of new philosophies. One that has bookstores lined with get-rich-quick schemes. I mean, I know I'm stretching your imagination, but imagine walking into a city like that. That's the kind of city Paul finds himself walking into. And he's talking to his friends in the church at Corinth, and the first thing he does is he reminds the people in the church, of the gospel. I want you to hear that. He reminds, not just the people in the culture, he reminds the people in the church 
of the gospel. Why would he remind the people in the church of the gospel? Well, if you read through the chapter, you find in verse 12, people begin to question whether there was a bodily resurrection. People in the church were questioning that. And so this great cornerstone of the gospel was beginning to slip out of the door of the church. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in a church that the real bodily resurrection was beginning to be questioned? And the answer to that should be, yes, I can imagine such a church. Because those churches are very much like some of the churches that are in our country as well. And so Paul's coming back into the church saying, okay guys, I need to remind you of the gospel. These are the critical components of the gospel. We can't let these things slip out of the door. And so he uses this language. You see in verse 3, this gospel I delivered to you is of first importance. Paul borrows a couple of uh, terms here. Uh, one of them that you'd be familiar with for the gospel is called the euangelion. That's the word for gospel in the Greek. And it means good news. And that's just a cultural term. And he lifts it out of the culture and he's using it for himself. And he's saying, you know what happens when the king makes a decree? He sends out messengers and the messengers go to all these different cities and the messengers come into the city and they say, good news, euangelion. And as soon as you hear that as a citizen, you gather around and say, what's the message from the king? And Paul is saying, I'm giving you a message. I'm, I'm delivering something to you. He's not making something up. It's not his philosophy. He's just a deliverer. And he's saying, euangelion, there's some good news from the king. And he's going to give us that good news. And he's saying, this message, this what you're going to hear, is of first importance. I realize people in Corinth... Or he could be standing here today and say, I realize, people of Wilmington, you live in a city where there's a sea of competing voices. You can walk down the street and there's peddlers for all kinds of things. You can can walk into the bookstores and the voices scream at you behind the slick covers. This is the way. Buy this. This is going to guarantee fulfillment. I realize you live in that kind of city, but this message that I'm bringing to you is of first importance. You have to have this message in place so you can live out you can understand all the other messages that come behind it in your life. You need to orient all other messages around this one message, the gospel. It's it's of first importance. Verse 2, he uses this word, hold fast. Don't lose your grip. There may be some of us here that that, that feel like we're, we're losing our grip. Have you ever come to church and you just felt like, I need to be here because I feel like I'm losing my grip. I, I had a grip sometime, but now I feel like because of the events of the world, I feel like I'm being swallowed up by the world. I need somebody to help me hold on. And Paul is saying, I'll help you. Here's the gospel. Hold on to it. Don't let it slip away.
it's, it's important that we realize this because the gospel can very easily slip out of the door of the church. I think I've used this event a couple of other times in an illustration, but it's so perfect for today. I went many years ago to UNCW to hear a speaker, and he was speaking on the topic of Jesus, and he began to talk in very glowing terms about Jesus. I mean, used terminology that I would use and basically said things that I would say, yeah, that I pretty much agree with what you're saying. And then at the end of the speech, after about an hour, he's sitting in an auditorium. It was the ballroom over at UNCW, full of college students. And he says this, but there really wasn't a bodily resurrection. Well, okay, now you've got my attention. That's different than what I'm used to hearing. And this was his explanation. The disciples dreamed that they saw Christ. And, you know, in a dream, you can think it's real. I mean, you ever dream that you're falling out of your bed? You wake up, you really feel like you're falling out of your bed. You, you have the real sensation. And so the disciples, 2,000 years ago, collectively somehow had a dream that they all really felt like they encountered Christ. But he, did, he really didn't rise from the dead. Now, that really wasn't disturbing or surprising that it came from a forum from the religion department at UNCW. I was not sort of blown away by that hearing that information in that setting. But I can tell you what, what was the most disheartening thing about that lecture is that that man was sponsored by a local Presbyterian church. You see, they lost a grip. This church, who has many, many members, has lost their grip. They've lost the gospel. The gospel is leaking out of the church. They, they, they're slipping down. And so Paul has to come in to this city and say, don't let go of the gospel. I, I could not count for you the number of conversations I have personally had with people who, as high school students, they were holding on to the gospel. And when they got to college, they started losing their grip. The voices got louder. The people who were saying things had letters attached to the end of their names. They stopped going to church. They started losing their grip. And many of the people I've talked to as older people, they're in a free fall. See, they had, a, they had something firm to stand on, but now they're in this free fall, and they're the people who are going to the bookstores and sucking up this information of saying, what hope is there for me? I let go of Christ. I do need something or someone else. I know death is coming. And I need to have an answer for that. I'm looking around for help. And they've lost their grip on the gospel. And so Paul is saying, I see that. I see that happening in Corinth. I know it can happen in Wilmington. Hold fast. This, this is the message of first importance. 
Secondly, he goes on to explain the content of the gospel. We see that in verse 3 and following. For I deliver to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, to Paul. The gospel can be summed up in what I think Paul is using an early Christian creed here in verse 3 and 4. And it's very easy to pick out, because each critical piece of the message is highlighted with the word that. Did you hear it in my reading? You see it in the text? These are the four that's. That Christ died. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. That he was buried. He was really buried. He died. He didn't faint. He didn't swoon. Sometimes you hear people saying, well, you know, those people back in the Old Testament, they weren't real smart enough to know if people somebody really was dead. They knew when they saw a dead person. And so the people that were really dead, they buried. That he was raised. Three days later, Jesus walks out of the tomb. He swallows up death. And that he appeared to Peter, to twelve, to five hundred, to Paul. He did appear. It wasn't a dream. Five hundred people didn't have the dream at the same time. They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They had communication with Jesus. Now, I think there's just a couple of things I want to highlight about this passage here in terms of the content. The first thing I want you to know is how objective it is. You see what Paul's giving? He's delivering some objective truth. He's not delivering his, his take on something. He's not delivering a philosophy. He's, a, he's delivering facts. These are the facts. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose. Jesus appeared. That is so helpful because it doesn't change. It it doesn't need to be massaged or manipulated in any way. These are the facts of the gospel. This is what happened. The gospel is the same today as it was yesterday and it will be forever. This is the message of first importance for everyone, not just for people in Corinth. And secondly... I want you to notice about this message of the gospel that the message is in no way about what anything you did. Do you see the word you in the explanation? The gospel is not about what you did. There's nothing here about how you responded. There's nothing in the message about how you feel. There's no, nothing in here about what you experienced. There's no, not one mention here about all the wonderful things you've done for Jesus. The gospel is not about you. The gospel is about Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. That's the good news. The good news is about Jesus Christ and he has conquered death and he has done something for you. 
Now, why is that so important? Why must we have that really locked down in our minds that it's really not about me or what I've done? It's really about Christ. And the answer to that question is when you get to your tomb, when you feel like your days are moving toward quickly to the very end, You do not at that moment want to be holding on with two fists or grabbing or holding fast with your hands to your commitment. You want to be holding on to Jesus' commitment. You do not want to be holding on to your prayer. You want to be holding on to His prayer for you on the cross. It is finished. I have done something. I have completed something. And you are the beneficiary of that. You do not want to hold on to your record at that moment. You want to be holding on to Jesus' record at that moment. You do not want to be holding on to your experience at that moment. You want to be holding on to the only objective reality. The only person who has literally walked out of the tomb. And that he is the only one who has experienced death and has conquered it, and He is promising you that I will use that same power when you get to your tomb. That's what you want to be holding on to. That's the gospel. That's what you want to remember. That's what you want to never let go of, and you never want to cloud it with what you've done or who you are. The gospel is about Jesus Christ And what He has done. And that He alone is capable of carrying you across the threshold from this life into the next. And He's proven it by His own resurrection. Now, most of the adults got that. And I know if you're seven or eight or nine, you're scribbling in your bulletin and you're kind of wandering around. I understand that. I was seven, eight, or nine. So if you're 7, 8, or 9, I want to give you a children's ministry, a little illustration right now. So if you're 7, 8, 9, you can appreciate this same information sort of at your level. Zachary and Morgan are 7 or 8, somewhere around there. Maybe a little bit younger. We live in a house that has a long hallway in it at that time. And so I am doing this little family devotion. I'm trying to help them understand this concept that I've just explained to you, that the gospel is about what Jesus has done, that he is uniquely able to carry you from this life into the next. And this book helped me with this illustration. It was so helpful for me, even if it wasn't helpful for my children. And I said, okay, Zachary Morgan, you guys get at the one end of the hallway, and I'll get the other end of the hallway. Okay. You know, and they're running down. They're all excited about it, lining up. Oh, this is going to be real exciting. And I'm like, and I'm standing at the other end of the hallway, 30 feet away, 25 feet away. Okay, now here's y'all's task. What I want you two to do is to get to me. Oh, no problem. Okay, now hold on. A couple of stipulations. You cannot have your feet or any part of your body touch the carpet. Okay, this is going to be a little bit more difficult. And you cannot use the walls in any way. And you can see them, you know, five and seven going, whoa, okay. So Morgan hops on Zachary's back thinking, well, this is good for me. Um, 
You know what I'm saying? Well, you know, it can't happen. You know, both of you have to. No, they're, you're kind of trying to figure out different ways, and they, you know, just they just can't figure out how how can how is this possible? And I said there there is an option here. You need to look around. There is a way you can get from there to here without you using the walls or using the carpet. And they're thinking, I just don't see any way. Is there anybody here that could possibly help you get from one end to the other? Dad, you come pick us up. Yeah. So I walked all the way across picked the two of them up, and carried them all the way to the end of the hallway. And said, that's the gospel. Your responsibility is to hold on. But you don't have to take any of the steps. Jesus Christ has come all the way down here for you. He has walked all the way out of the tomb for you. Please, just hold on to the gospel. Do not let go of that one truth. Do not get yourself in the mix. You just hold on to Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the content of the gospel. And so in this message, we have, Paul is trying to remind them of the gospel. He's trying to give them the content of the gospel. And then finally, he is trying to give them an illustration here about who he is and the effects of the gospel. Paul moves in these last few verses in verse 8 through 11 to biography. He's gone basically from history to biography. And he's using himself as a sermon illustration. And I want you to just notice this one term, verse 8, last of all, Jesus has appeared just as he did to James, just as he did to the 500, just as he did to 12, he's appeared last of all to Paul. And look at the word he uses to describe himself. As one untimely born. Now, commentators sort of wrestle with what is it that Paul is trying to say in this, with using this particular word, and they're on two different sides. One of the groups think that Paul is talking about he's outside of the normal order. He's untimely born because Jesus did make a number of appearances before his ascension, and then Christ did ascend, and then he then appeared to Paul outside of the normal order. Jesus wasn't making these kinds of appearances anymore. And so Paul is untimely born. He's outside of the norm here. Or... Untimely born literally in the Greek means stillborn. So it's possible that Paul is saying, you know, I was dead. I was born dead. I was born without any hope of crossing the line on my own. And Christ came into my life at that point. Well, either way... Here's, I want you to hear how I was thinking about Paul in these few verses. Now, this isn't in the Bible, and it's not in the text, so you probably don't want to write this down. But just be thinking with me on how I was thinking. Jesus Christ appeared in some out-of-ordinary circumstance 
to only one other person. He did appear to Peter. He did appear to the women of the tomb. He did appear to the twelve. He did appear to five hundred. But after he ascended, he came back and he just appeared in this kind of physical fashion to one other person. Paul. And so I was asking myself, why Paul? Why why would he choose Paul? Why wouldn't he choose just any other person? And here's where how I was thinking. Paul is probably, and some would say uh, certainly, but he's at least arguably one of the most religious people on the planet at the time. I mean, in terms of keeping law, of doing what you're supposed to be doing as a person on this planet... Paul was doing it better than anybody else on the planet. He was the most religious person on the planet. And Jesus has decided to come and visit this particular person. Paul's description of himself. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in his flesh, I have more. Do you hear that? He's not trying to brag. He's just trying to say, you know, there are lots of people out there who think they're good, and anybody I've encountered so far, I've been better than that person. And he gives a bunch of lists of things that he's done. He's, he's, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was from Israel. In regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. As far as his legal standing, he was perfect. And so Paul's resume beats out all of our resumes put together. I mean, if we took all of our good things put together in this group, our resume together still somehow doesn't fit Paul's resume. And despite all Paul's good good deeds, he still can't get into heaven. And, And I have this feeling that what Jesus is saying... He's coming to the most religious person, the most qualified from a human standpoint to actually get into heaven on their own merits. And he's saying to us and the rest of the world, nobody gets into heaven based on what they've done. Nobody can qualify on their own. And yet today, many times, you you have this question in your own mind. Some of you here are wrestling with this very question. You certainly know people who are. And when you begin to talk about the uniqueness of Christ, you get a very common rebuttal, and that's this rebuttal. I'm a good person. I'm not perfect, but I, I wake up in the morning... And I'm trying my best. I'm trying to make a positive contribution to the world. I'm not a bad dad. I'm not a bad businessman. I'm not a bad college student. I'm not perfect, but I'm basically sort of moving along in a good pattern. And why can't I get into heaven? You have that question? Some of you have the question now. You certainly know somebody who has that question. It's a very good question. And the answer is the reason why a good person can't get into heaven is that a good person's entrance into heaven is based on themselves. Most people who've had this 
kind of way of thinking, and at times, even myself, this is what they've thought. I've set a standard of how good you need to be to get into heaven. And guess what the big surprise is? I happen to be meeting that standard, and so I'm going to get in because I've sort of kept the standard. And then when they get towards their death, they make demands that God operate according to their standards. You see how that works? I think good people should get into heaven. I'm one of those good people. And I've done better than I've done worse. And so when I meet God, I'm going to say, God, here, I've set up a standard. I've met the standard. And you should let me into heaven. And the Bible has a word, a term for this kind of thinking. It's called sin. Sin is not doing something bad. Sin is thinking that you know something better than God. And that he should operate according to your standards, not according to his own standards. And that's why when you encounter somebody with the gospel, you're not really trying to change their bad habits. That's not the place that you want to start. You want to start at the heart, because of the heart, the person is saying, I'm the king, I get to decide what the standards are, and I'm going to get myself in according to those standards. And if you've ever thought that way, I want to encourage you with this, you have some great company. There are all kinds of great Christians who thought this way. Namely, the Apostle Paul. The person who wrote this book was thinking, I'm getting in based on what I've done. Another person that you would meet in your, your uh, little uh, boat is Martin Luther. Martin Luther thought, I'm getting in based on what I've done. You would meet all kinds of people, many people that are Christians in this very room, who thought, I thought I was getting in based on what I've done. But then I turned the corner, and this would be what I would want for you, for you to turn the same corner as the Apostle Paul did, as Martin Luther did, as Paul Phillips did, and say, I'm turning the corner away from my good deeds, and I'm encountering grace. I'm encountering Jesus Christ. I'm encountering the person who has walked all the way from his world into mine, in the person of Christ. He has taken all of your sin and the judgment, your death, upon himself. He has substituted himself for you He has walked out of the tomb. And now He's saying to you, Today, let go of everything else and hold on to me. Let go of all the slick titled books. Let go of all the worldly passions that feel momentarily like they're giving me life and I can't let go of those. He's saying, let go of those things. You hold on to me. And I will take you from this world into the next. That's the gospel. 
Some of you here are facing circumstances, and they may be health, or they may be other ones, that feel like I'm getting swallowed up. Your hope is the gospel. Some of you have your hands so tightly wrapped around things in the world, or maybe just yourself, but you feel it slipping. It's not holding like it used to. Your hope is the gospel. Some of you have got both of your hands on the gospel, but the world's a tough place and it just feels like you're slipping. Hold on. Hold fast. He has come for you. He is coming again. That's the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, there are all kinds of people in this room. All kinds of different philosophies, understanding of life, take on the Bible, view of their death, what happens after death. But you have intersected their lives today with the message of first importance. The gospel. Some here need to reevaluate what it is they're holding on to. Some need to just tighten their grip. I pray by the work and the power of your Holy Spirit that you would allow that to happen now. Lord, we're grateful that we live in a place and a time with so much material blessings. And as we worship you with our tithes and offerings, I I just pray no one would put money in a basket thinking that's of benefit to them. That you would look on them in a more favorable way. But they would give out of a generous heart because of all that you have done for them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.